Before we begin part three, I have a quick request. If you haven't already, please visit City of Refuge in the Apple Podcast directory and leave our show a review. It's one of the best ways you can help new listeners find our work. But really, anything you can do to help spread the word is greatly appreciated. Sometimes it feels like the world knows little more about nonviolence than it did a hundred years ago. I say this based mainly on the blank stares I receive when I tell people that I run a publication about nonviolence. Don't get me wrong, I'm not surprised by the reaction. It's not like nonviolence is taught in school. Most people's knowledge of it begins and ends with a cursory connection to Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And if they even have an opinion of it, they tend to see it as a high-minded but naive approach to resolving conflicts. Few people know that nonviolent resistance is actually, statistically, the most effective method of resistance, responsible for bringing down dictators and winning most of the rights we enjoy today. Of course, the fact that I can tell you this is, in fact, evidence that we do know far more about nonviolence than we did a century ago. There's even a whole field of academic study known as civil resistance that has been broadening our understanding of nonviolence for decades. But in 1926, when Magda and Andrei Trokme returned to Europe, all they could really know about nonviolence was that it seemed to be working for Gandhi. They had wanted to meet him to learn more firsthand, but that didn't pan out. So, with no real means to study nonviolence, they had to experiment and teach themselves. And that meant putting themselves in situations of personal and professional risk. In this episode, I'll explore the decade leading up to World War II and bring us to the moment when France surrenders to Germany and two preachers in a tiny French village announce the start of a bold new experiment in nonviolence, telling their congregation, the duty of Christians is to resist the violence directed at our consciences with... The Weapons of the Spirit. From Waging Nonviolence, I'm your host, Brian Farrell, and this is City of Refuge. From 1927 to 1934, André and Magda Trocme lived in northern France, working in two very grim industrial cities. They were ugly, depressing places where smoke and soot permeated everything. Worse yet, though, were the people, who Andre and Magda described in their memoirs as living lives of real desperation. The population wasn't interested in anything outside their life of forced labor and liquor. They were the byproducts of human progress, desperate people, drinkers, really the dregs of society. But that wasn't the biggest problem they faced. Due to the lack of Protestants in the region and a greater interest in the communist or socialist parties, Andre's congregations were pretty small. Even his brand of Christian socialism was no match for their contempt of religion. Not that Andre couldn't sympathize. He was also at odds with the totally bourgeois Protestant church, which was threatened by his politics, particularly his pacifism. Since he didn't have the thriving ministry he had envisioned, Andre needed to look elsewhere for fulfillment. Already, as a student of theology, André had become involved with an organization called the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was founded in 1914 and still exists today as one of the oldest organizations dedicated to nonviolence. And it was through this network that André became more immersed in peacework, taking bolder and bolder steps. This was 1932, and with War on the Horizon, Andre threw his previous cautions to the wind to speak and write openly in support of conscientious objection. He also did something else that was unheard of. He accepted a visiting World War I veteran, 
wanting to return to some of the French villages he had helped destroy and ask for their forgiveness. I was deeply moved by the prospect of a German finally feeling and expressing his remorse. He was, to my knowledge, the first German to return to the site of his ill-considered actions and ask his French victims for forgiveness. As such, he should have been welcomed, heard, understood, and even celebrated. But that isn't quite what happened. Even 14 years after World War I had ended, anger and hatred toward Germans was strong. While Andre's own small congregation received the veteran warmly, the other towns they visited were scandalized. I tried in vain to calm them down. A minority wanted to hear what the German had to say. He did manage to say quite a bit, but the atmosphere was so negatively charged that everything he said ended up being taken the wrong way. His emotional confession inspired only shouts of hatred and derision from the majority of the audience. While Andre managed to end that particular meeting before it got any more out of control, he found that the authorities in the next town the German was set to visit had already canceled the event. What's more, he was now a known troublemaker. My career as a clergyman had been seriously jeopardized by my actions, which were considered to be those of a militant. I was now under the surveillance of the secret police. In some ways, this must have been freeing, as Andre no longer had a pristine reputation to protect. Feeling emboldened to act more in accordance with his beliefs, Andre joined a march for peace in Europe in the summer of 1932. It had been organized by the international nonviolence group he had joined with the goal of spreading the urgency of reconciliation to avoid another great war. For a couple of weeks, I took part in the march through Germany. We formed a solid team made up of Germans, English women, and me, the one Frenchman. Every night in packed rooms, we addressed assemblies convened by an association with socialist leanings. In Frankfurt, we were incredibly successful, and the audience nearly carried us on their shoulders in triumph. In Heidelberg, the meeting nearly turned into a brawl. Two groups of young people, one Nazi and the other communists, confronted each other. This sort of clash happened nearly every day in Heidelberg. But then an odd thing happened. They united in their hatred of Andre and his fellow pacifists. It was the one thing the Nazis and communists had in common. Each of them accused us of siding with the adversaries. At the end of the evening, we nearly fell victim to the brown shirts. These were Hitler's paramilitary. I was taken aside by one of them who was waving a revolver in my face, and I suggested to him in German that he should kill me right there in front of everybody. My proposal seemed to have calmed him down because he disappeared into the crowd. But that wasn't even the craziest encounter on his trip. In southern Germany, they found themselves in a theater taken over by brown shirts. They were trying to shut down the event, but Andre and his colleagues decided they couldn't back down. So they decided to address the crowd of angry young men entering the venue through the back door. Andre went first because he spoke the best German. Before the four or 500 brown shirts had a chance to react, I shouted out Hitler's own words in a booming voice. Germany, awake! For a few seconds, there was a stupefied silence. I took advantage of it to launch headfirst into the issue of the day. The need to awaken in the face of the coming danger of the Second World War. Andre went on to explain his call for reconciliation and support for the equal treatment of Germans thereby recognizing one of their key grievances since the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I. Down with arms, I said. 
Today, the Christian who is responsible is opposed to war and the actions that prepare for war. He is a conscientious objector. A thunder of applause answered me. The match had been won. Except it hadn't. Andre realized this when a brown shirt came up to him afterwards and said, You have precisely expressed what our Fuhrer tells us every day. Justice for all, equal treatment for all, and peace for all. It turned out the German brown shirts had only heard what they wanted to hear. Andre tried to argue back. Yes, I replied. But I didn't say it in the same way. And why does your Fuhrer persecute the Jews if he believes that? The young man responded by saying that it was because the Jews are the number one enemy of peace. Andre could see that he had not and would not create any real change that day. At the same time, though, it was an important wake-up call, one that helped him see the dangers that lay ahead more clearly than much of the world at that time. Meanwhile, back in France, Magda got her own wake-up call. She had accepted a job at the local primary school to teach several classes in Italian. The school served the children of mostly Italian immigrants, so Magda saw it as an opportunity to help these children keep up with their native language. The only problem was with the books, which had been supplied by the Italian consulate. As soon as I had a moment, I opened the books, and what did I see? Magnificent pictures. Even the font and the paper were beautiful. But sprinkled generously throughout the book, like salt and pepper, was a seasoning that was 100% fascist. The book spoke of Mussolini as Italy's savior. Basically, it was fascist brainwashing. There was no way Magda would allow herself to teach this propaganda. So she announced her resignation to the consulate while also denouncing the Italian government. They were furious, but it felt like a personal triumph, particularly as the daughter of an Italian colonel. Once and for all, I got rid of fascism, which had been persecuting me up until that day. Of course, she knew it wasn't gone from her life entirely. Like Andre, she had simply become bolder about her beliefs at a time when she saw how important those beliefs were. Much of the world was not yet prepared for what would come, but Magda and Andre, because of their direct experience with fascism and Nazism, weren't going to be taken by surprise. I had seen how Mussolini started. My husband saw what was happening in Germany, so we were prepared to understand what may happen in France before other people. This is a good place to take a quick break and tell you about Waging Nonviolence, the publication that's bringing you this podcast. Earlier, I talked about the wealth of information that exists for activists today and how different that is from a century ago when people like Andre and Magda Trokme were trying to take action against injustices. Much of what they did was invented on the fly and through trial and error. Today, however, you can go to a website like Waging Nonviolence and learn how movements, both past and present, become successful. In fact, one of the main reasons we started this publication was to serve as a meeting place for activists and organizers from around the world so that they could share information about what works and what doesn't. Now, after 10 years, we have an archive with thousands of stories from more than 80 countries. And some of these stories have proven to be quite influential. A few years ago, we published a series by Mark and Paul Engler that they later expanded into a book called This is an Uprising. It offers a new understanding of how movements are able to build momentum and ultimately leverage power. Since its release, This is an Uprising has become a bit of a phenomenon, 
and it has spawned a new approach to organizing utilized by many of today's most powerful and important movements. If that sounds like a book worth reading, I have exciting news. You can get a copy when you become a sustaining member of Waging Nonviolence, starting at just $3 a month. Head over to wagingnonviolence.org support and you can sign up there. You'll also see that we have a number of other great gifts on offer and you can choose multiple gifts starting at $5 per month. So please do support our work and know that when you do, you are helping to grow the wealth of knowledge that fuels today's movements. Now back to the story. After seven years in northern France, living in two very tough industrial towns, the Trocmes were ready to move on. They now had four young children to worry about. They wanted to move because the climate and the coal dust was so unhealthy that we started not, we were not very healthy children. That's Nellie Hewitt, the oldest of the Trocme children, and the only one still living, now in her 90s. Some of her earliest memories are of this time. And I remember how black it was, and Mother used to change us twice a day because we were praying in the garden in the black dirt, black dust. She became so feverish from breathing that air that Andre and Magda were forced to send her away to a children's home in Switzerland where she could recover. This clearly could not go on, so Andre began looking for a new church that would take him on as its pastor. Now, you might be thinking this is why the Trocmes ended up in Le Chambon, a mountain village with plenty of fresh, clean air. But it's actually not. Andre wanted to be near an industrial city. I swore I would not be a pastor in the country. It has always been the city and its urban problems that drew me in. And so he sent out applications to all his top choices. But remember, Andre was now a known troublemaker, taking positions on war that were not accepted by the church hierarchy. The administration of the French church forbid the church where my father had applied. They say, if you take Trocme as a pacifist, it will create a rift in the church. And so Andre was turned down by his top two choices, leading him to feel desperate and worried about his future. I will end up on the street or on the steps of the church. All that will be left for me to do is play dead. Just as things seemed entirely hopeless, Andre received an invitation to become the minister of Le Chambon. He knew nothing of this small village in the mountains of south-central France. The fact that it sat 3,000 feet up on an old volcanic plateau, hours from any major city, was not appealing, nor was its rather scant population of around 900 people. But the position was his for the taking. The village offered to hire him on an interim basis, which was a calculated move. The Protestant church hierarchy couldn't block interim appointments. So Andre really wasn't in any kind of position to say no. Le Chambon was a take-it-or-leave-it situation. I took it. And so he arrived in Chambon as a temporary in 1934. He had been an urban fellow, a university fellow, a multilingual fellow, and my mother too, all their life. So they had no alternative. They had to adjust. Why did this tiny village want André Trocme, a pacifist troublemaker, a thorn in the side of the Protestant church? Well... Quiet and remote as they were, the people of Le Chambon and the wider plateau carried quite a proud history of progressivism and resistance. Unlike the rest of France, which was over 99% Catholic, almost the entire population of the plateau, around 9,000 people, were Protestant. 
What's more, most were descendants of the Huguenots, the first French people who adopted John Calvin's new faith at the time of the Reformation. They were persecuted by the Catholic kings of France up to the French Revolution. During that time, the plateau became a refuge and center of resistance. Those old Huguenots had lots of difficulties with the police and the army of the kings who were persecuting them. They had a horrible time. There were massacres and mass exoduses, but also stories of bravery and perseverance, which became part of the local lore. There were horrible stories, like the one of Marie Durand, who was locked in a tower for 30 years. She went in that tower as a young girl. She only had to sign a paper saying that she would submit to the Catholic religion. It would have been enough to get released, but she remained there, using the time to write the word resist on a stone. Stories like these helped the people of the plateau identify with all who were persecuted and tended to incline them toward more staunchly left politics. But unlike the more secular left of the industrial north, the plateau's leftism was firmly rooted in Christianity specifically the kind of social justice, pacifist-oriented Christianity that André subscribed to. Despite all that, however, André was still pretty down on Le Chambon when he, Magda, and their children arrived in the summer of 1934. The town of Le Chambon is ugly. Dreary granite facades alternate with dilapidated hotels covered with dirty yellow or gray stucco. The whole thing looks unbearably sad. Nellie had a similar first impression. I remember how um, drab the, the village was. Granite homes, you know, on the sidewalk, no front lawn or anything. No color. I mean, those Huguenots were poor and they were austere too. Still, André was a man of big ideas, and even though the setting was less than inspiring, he immediately got to work on breathing new life into Le Chambon. Among the problems the village faced was its lack of a secondary school or high school. That meant the young people of Le Chambon had to leave the region for further schooling or work in the cities. In short, the village was suffering from wasted potential and a serious brain drain. Building a secondary school was already an idea before the Trocmes arrived, but they were eager to support it. In fact, it was Magda who gave the idea its vision. When Dad said, we start a school, Mother said, yes, we start a school with a different philosophy. Boys and girls together, on a system, we talk about War and peace, we'll talk about human questions, but we will prepare for the university so that the young people will stay on the plateau. André was very excited by the idea, and by the time he proposed it to the village leaders, it was fully infused with his and Magda's particular set of values. I had long dreamed of starting a secondary school that would be free of the narrow-minded nationalist teaching of history where students from every country of the world would come to learn about peace. The village was in full support of the idea given its history of progressivism, and what's more, it was already a sort of youth haven. Due to the fresh mountain air, city parents would send their children to Le Chambon for health and recreational purposes. That gave the village a real economic boost during the summer months. So an international secondary school would not only fit right in, but it would give the village a chance to earn money during the winter months as well. Over the next year, the Trocmes worked with the village leaders and individual Protestant supporters to get everything set up. It was called the École Nouvelle Sévenol, a name that referenced a nearby mountain range. Les Cévennes are a bunch of mountains south of Le Chambon, which were a refuge for Huguenots during the religious uh -huh. war. So it was called l'École Nouvelle Sévenol. Nouvelle because it was new in concept, and Sévenol because it was Protestant. 
Again, though, it was a kind of Protestantism that was both worldly and progressive. We wanted to be layman in spirit, but Protestant and international in practice. A means of expression of the ancient Protestant left, still so much alive in the region, had to be invented, and I insisted on the promotion of pacifism. One of the most important tasks was finding someone to run the school. Someone recommended a man named Edward Tace, and, as it turned out, he and Andre were already well acquainted. For starters, they had been in the same theology program back in Paris. Edouard was two years ahead, and like Andre, he had spent a year studying in New York, where he also tutored the Rockefeller children. It was something of a tradition for the Rockefellers to hire French theology students. Despite this shared background, however, the thing that mattered most to Andre was that Edouard Tace was an avowed pacifist. This made him the right person to carry out the vision for an international school of peace. But Edouard was to be more than school director. He would also serve as Andre's assistant pastor, a role that would make him integral to the incredible things to come in Le Chambon. And in many ways, he was an unsung hero. They always speak of Andre Trocmé because he was a, uh, he was charismatic. He, mm-hmm. he was uh, warm. He made contact. That's Nellie during my first phone conversation with her. But you know that they always forget his colleague, Edouard Thais. The they she's referring to are most written accounts of what happened in Le Chambon. Edouard Taste just doesn't get much play. That was something I hoped to rectify, but I also didn't think the odds were very good on finding someone who knew him and spoke English. After all, Edouard died over 30 years ago in France. But then Nellie came to my rescue yet again. His daughter is in a rest home near Swarthmore. And she might uh, be willing to have you talk to her. Swarthmore, Pennsylvania is only a couple hours away from me, so I made the trip to meet with another 90-year-old woman. Well, André Trocmé and his wife (laughs) are much more verbal than my parents. (laughs) That's Jean Tace Whitaker, the oldest daughter of Edward and Mildred Tace who, like Nellie, seems to very much embody her parents' most notable trait. My parents seem to be rather silent. Jean's parents were both Protestant missionaries when they met and married in Cameroon in the mid-1920s. In fact, that's where she was born, but the family soon moved to Ohio, where Jean's mother had grown up. Edward took up teaching at a small college. He had the experience of teaching in America, which I think influenced him when he later founded the, the Collège Sévenol in France. He liked the more relaxed atmosphere in American classrooms where teachers and students could interact on a more equal level. In particular, he admired American schools for being co-ed, something that wasn't done in France at the time. And he believed strongly in educating women, a passion that eventually became quite personal as the Tases would go on to raise eight girls Eventually, the family moved back to Africa for another missionary posting in Madagascar. But Edward's heart was no longer in this line of work. He now had contempt for the colonial government and the Protestant church's role there. There was a little diary he kept in which he said that he felt he would be more fulfilled by teaching than by anything else. This diary is actually quite interesting because it's one of the few personal writings about his life that exist. Although Jean couldn't locate it for me, her son Mark Whitaker knew quite a bit more about it. There's 
evidence in those journals, not only about his plan for this school, which became seven all, but also his concern about what was happening in Europe and his desire to sort of be closer to, you know, the resistance. A few years ago, Mark wrote a memoir about his family called My Long Journey Home. While the book centers mostly on his experience growing up the son of a white woman and a black man in 1950s and 60s America, he also talks very lovingly of his grandfather, who he got to know quite well in his later years. According to Mark, this journal is the closest Edward ever got to a memoir, which is probably the main reason he gets so little mention in the histories of Le Chambon. Unlike the Troke maze, he left behind very little documentation. It just wasn't in his nature to sort of think of himself as this person who history would be interested in and would therefore want to preserve every record of everything he had done. He was just modest in that way. But he wasn't modest in his ambitions. In the journal, under a headline, Projects for the Future, he speaks of his desire to create this progressive school and his yearning to, quote, join the real battle for nonviolence and a just social and international order. So, as his daughter Jean put it, He got his wish. When the Sevenall School opened in October 1938, there were just 18 students. And because a school building did not exist, classes were initially held in the space behind the church. Soon, though, as Nellie told me, they spread out around the village, wherever available space could be found. People would say, where is l'école Nouvelle Saint-Marie? Everywhere. His mother even taught a class in a, in a large uh, bathroom and laundry room at a friend's house. Magda was one of just four unpaid faculty members that first year, the others being Edward, his wife Mildred, and remarkably, a Jewish refugee from Vienna named Hilda Hofert. She was perhaps the first Jewish refugee to arrive in Le Chambon, having fled when Hitler annexed Austria in the spring of 1938. By the fall of 1939, as the school began its second year, many more refugees were about to begin their journey. These are today's main events. Germany has invaded Poland and has bombed many towns. Then, two days later, on September 3rd... This is London. You will now hear a statement by the Prime Minister. I am speaking to you from the Cabinet Room at 10 Downing Street. I have to tell you now, this country is at war with Germany. France also declared war on Germany that same day. While André had been anticipating this moment for years, now that it was here, he was struck by an existential crisis. He was a person who always took action. Building a school dedicated to peace as the world prepared for war was one thing. Now that war was here, what action could he take? The moment forced him to confront whether he was truly committed to nonviolence and whether it was actually on the right path. Many thoughts raced through his mind, including, albeit briefly, the idea of assassinating Hitler. After all, he spoke German. Maybe he could find a way to infiltrate the upper ranks and just kind of end the madness before it got any worse. But then he gave it up right away because he said, it's, that's not what I should do as a pacifist. It's better to resist. He um, was a factory of ideas. Yeah. He was not a, a pacifist to sit back and know it. In fact, it was really important for him to show, perhaps more to himself than anyone else, that his pacifism was not the result of cowardice or a refusal to carry his share of the burden. 
This was something he tried to make clear in a piece of writing from 1939. It was actually just a statement he wrote for himself to better clarify his thoughts, which was found decades later. I'm not a man full of pride rebelling against the world. I'm not a zealot or a fanatic. I have never had a vision. I have a solid head on my shoulders. I am not exceptional in any way. I have a wife, four children, and material needs. I have my faults, my miserable character flaws, just as everyone else does. I do not believe I am better than other men. Like everyone else, I have to take some responsibility for wars. I will not make any excuses for Hitler. In fact, he is the incarnation of the evil I detest. I have not discouraged any of the soldiers as they left for their posts, although my authority as minister would have allowed me to do so. I have no desire to return to the past, to my safe life. I only ask to be allowed to serve those in danger, the most pitiful victims of the war, women and children in the cities being bombed. I ask that my service be exclusively of a civilian nature. I am happy to give my life as others give theirs, without faltering in my faithful service to my master, Jesus Christ. While Andre didn't know what he was going to do or where he would need to go to do it, he felt certain that he wouldn't find the answer in Le Chambon, this quiet, safe little village in the mountains. So he offered up his resignation to the church council comprised of the village leadership. What's more, he didn't want to drag them into whatever mess would ensue when he refused to go to war. But to his surprise, they would not accept his resignation. They supported his concerns and were willing to adapt to whatever might happen. So he continued on as minister through the winter. Then, in the spring of 1940, the Germans began their march toward France. It is now 8.30 Tuesday morning in France. The latest dispatches from Paris describe thousands of French buses rolling out of the city, crowded with army reinforcements, who have been streaming out of the French capital toward the front for 24 hours. Crowds lining the wide French boulevards cheer on the soldiers and thrust gifts of flowers and fruit through the windows of the buses, which are decorated with such slogans as, It won't be long now, and we're on our way, Mr. Hitler. Andre's inner turmoil began to stir again. He sent a letter to the American Red Cross. I offered my services as a nurse or as a chauffeur in order to help the civilian population in the war zone and at a dangerous place, of course, with no salary. But the Red Cross turned him away. They could only take volunteers from neutral countries or at the very least French men who had been exempt from the draft. Andre could claim no such advantage. Although he was now 40 years old, he could still be called to duty, and of course he would refuse, which would set in motion any number of unpleasant outcomes. This prompted him to write a last will and testament. I know that my act of conscientious objection will not be understood. I know that I will become the object of the most terrible accusations, of colluding with the enemy, of spying, of being part of a fifth column, or who knows what else. Worse than these things, however, was his fear of what might happen to Magda and their children. I know that I'm setting the wheels in motion for the terrible hours my poor wife will suffer and for my children to be subjected to trials that should not be faced by children their age. There is clear dejection and even resignation in his voice. I could have left the country, become an expatriate. 
After all, I always knew ahead of time, with a clear and deep-rooted instinct, that my life would end in a violent manner. But I resisted the calls from other places and returned to my country. I am prepared to suffer anything. But Andre never had to face the consequences of refusing to fight because the war between France and Germany ended before he could even be called into action. The French resistance has collapsed and the Maginot Line has been broken, destroying all French resistance. Paris is an open city. Today, French envoys established contact with German representatives to receive Hitler's peace terms. In Bordeaux, the temporary French capital, Premier Pétain, repeated that France was defeated and must give up the war. Just six weeks after entering France, the Germans were marching down the Champs-Élysées. On June 22, 1940, Marshal Philippe Pétain, an 84-year-old World War I hero, signed the armistice with Hitler. According to the terms of the agreement, the German army would occupy a northern zone, comprising about three-fifths of the country, from the Atlantic coast to the Spanish border to Paris and the northern industrial areas. Meanwhile, a supposedly free government, led by Marshal Pétain and based in the central town of Vichy, would run a southern or unoccupied zone. This is where Le Chambon was located. Given his World War I heroics, Pétain enjoyed fairly widespread popularity, which overshadowed the fact that he was in league with the Nazis and would soon be enacting laws committed to furthering its war effort, as well as its racist anti-Semitic agenda. We could not be brainwashed as many people had been by the government of Marshal Pétain. Other people thought Pétain was a great hero, but this did not mean he was not a puppet for the new government. He was an old man. He was in the hands of a government that was basing their views on the Nazis. There were some within the French government who strongly opposed the armistice, like Brigadier General Charles de Gaulle, who fled to England before it was signed. In a famous speech broadcast in French by the BBC, de Gaulle called on the French people to, quote, continue the fight as best they can. De Gaulle's speech has been credited as sowing the seeds of the French resistance. But that resistance was still years away from taking shape. Meanwhile, on the plateau, André Trocmé and Édouard Tace were preparing a speech of their own, one that would foment a different kind of resistance, and much more quickly. On June 23, 1940, the day after the armistice was signed, they issued a joint statement, which André read instead of his Sunday sermon. He began by saying, Just as the Israelites of the Old Testament suffered, so we have come to our moment of suffering and humiliation. He went on to talk about the importance of keeping hope alive, not blaming others for the country's problems, and staying true to one's beliefs. Have no illusions. The events of recent days mean that the totalitarian doctrine of violence now enjoys formidable prestige in the eyes of the world because it has, from the human point of view, been impressively successful. Andre then spoke the words he is now most famous for. The duty of Christians is to resist the violence directed at our consciences with the weapons of the Spirit, to love, to forgive, to show kindness to our enemies. That is our duty. But we must do our duty without conceding defeat, without servility, 
without cowardice. We will resist when our enemies demand that we act in ways that go against the teachings of the gospel. We will resist without fear, without pride, and without hatred. Can you imagine hearing this speech in 1940, just days after your country was defeated by the Nazis and your government began collaborating with them? It was one thing for de Gaulle to deliver his message of resistance over the airwaves from London, but it was another thing entirely for André and Edouard to speak from within the belly of the beast. Hoping that Nelly might have some memory of that day, I asked her to describe how the people of Le Chambon reacted. Well, it's difficult to describe. Did I give you the name of Catherine Cambesedes? She was older than I was, and so she understood better what was preached. And amazingly, she is someone Nelly still keeps in touch with. You might be able to interview it by telephone. Hello? And so, once again, Nelly's network came through. And this time, I was talking to someone who saw Andre Trokme deliver his Weapons of the Spirit sermon. I don't think there are many people who were there when I was there who are still alive. I mean, I'm 93, you know, not, it's pretty old. <laughs> well, you don't sound it. You sound great. <laughs> <laughs> well, my head's okay, but it's my body just beginning to flinch. Catherine then told me her memory of that day as a 16-year-old girl. She went into church just utterly racked with fear and confusion. Her country had just lost a war and was now divided and occupied. And I remember the feeling coming out of church, thinking, oh, well, all right. Because if everything that's familiar to you all of a sudden is crumbling, what do you do? What do you tie yourself to? What do you hang on to? You don't know what the tomorrow will bring. You don't know what anything will bring. And those two men said, well, actually the basic thing from which we live has not changed. And that was very, very soothing to hear that. It wasn't long before Catherine and her family, like almost everyone living in Le Chambon, became active members in a burgeoning spiritual resistance that spread across the plateau. While the exact shape and form of this resistance was not yet clear to anyone, let alone André Trokme and Edouard Tace, its parameters had been defined and its soul awakened. On the next episode... 1938, during the annexation of Austria, I was nine years old, okay? Uh, I had been exposed to all the Nazi songs and so forth. Uh, I loved it as a, as a young boy. I went to the town hall square, and I stood there with 100,000 or more people yelling our heads off, and Volk and Reich and Führer, one people, one empire, one leader. And um, when I came home, I very proudly said, I saw our Führer. And my mother slapped me and said, that's not our Führer. And I was very confused. I didn't understand. City of Refuge was researched, written, and produced by me, Brian Farrell. Magda and Andre Chokme are performed by Ava Eisenson and Brian McCarthy. Our theme music and other original songs are by Will Travers. This episode also features music by Audionautics, and it was mixed by David Tattashore. For more information about this episode, please go to our website, wagingnonviolence.org. 
There you'll find a transcript, photos, a list of our sources, music used, and much more.